It's good morning to Luke O'Neill, Professor of Biochemistry at Trinity College in Dublin. Morning, Luke. Good morning, Pat. Now, loads of things on the agenda today. Uh, I suppose we should talk about that black cloud that uh, the CMO referred to, Dr. Tony Holohan, the Indian variant. What do we know from the science? Yeah, that's right, the black cloud. But um, over the weekend, a huge amount of of extra information has come out on this one. Obviously, the UK are examining examining it very, very closely. You know, we know a lot about it, actually. It's got 13 mutations. So it is different, obviously, to the other ones, hence it's given the number B1617.2. and, and it's noted it's more transmissible, so maybe 50% more than the B1171, which was the last variant that came along. But really, Pat, there's good news anyway. I mean, the antibodies against the older one still work against this one, in a sense. And nobody has developed severe disease, basically, from this Indian variant if they've been vaccinated with the previous one. So, But it's, it's data, the data keeps coming all the time on this one, so it's interesting, isn't it? Yet another variant has cropped up, I guess. Now, the question of the vaccines which are used in the UK, and they have rather more cases of the Indian variant than we have, um, they uh, have had their vaccination programme dominated by AstraZeneca and Pfizer. What do we know about those jabs in protecting people against this new variant? Yeah, Pfizer is 88% effective, they're saying, after the second jab. I mean, they've done an interesting study there, like a real-world study, I guess. So one jab does give some protection, as we know, but the second jab, it really gave a high level of protection against the Indian variant. AstraZeneca slightly less, it was 60%. But then there was a wider gap between the doses and some of the people wouldn't have been fully vaccinated, if you know what I mean. So they, they think they'll be equivalent. They'll both be able to protect at a very high level. And then Pfizer themselves released a statement saying in their hands that their vaccine is 70 to 75% effective against this new variant. And they tested 30 other variants, if you can believe it. This is in a lab setting now. And again, the mm-hmm. Pfizer vaccine was efficacious against all the variants. So the, the view at the moment is the vaccine Vaccines, you may catch the, the virus if it's if it's a new variant, but it won't progress into severe disease. And of course, that's the most important thing, because as I always say, we, we don't invent vaccines to stop you getting sniffles. We invent them to stop you getting severe disease. And the signs are good that many of these variants, then vac- the old vac- vaccines, if you will, should give some protection against severe disease. Is there any argument for shortening the gap between the first and second dose of AstraZeneca? If you remember in the UK, uh, four weeks was the original advice from uh, AstraZeneca themselves. And then it um, expanded to 12 weeks. They figured it was better to leave more time to elapse. And then 16 weeks. And I think they also stretched the gap in Pfizer. So are they likely to reverse that strategy? They will. That's a supply. I mean, the point is, um, immunologically, you can leave it longer. It'll still work, you know. But you might as well get the two jabs done, you know, in, in a relatively quick time, I suppose, is one idea here. Four, six, eight, 12 weeks. They're all good gaps, really, you know. There is some evidence if you leave it longer, it might work better. But the, these differences are are quite small, really, you know. And remember, Pat, the evidence is the first dose is good anyway. You will get a good response from the first jab. The second one reinforces that as the idea. So you might as well get the second one in as is one line of reasoning, especially if, if the newer variants, you need the second jab to give you really strong protection against the new variant. You might as well get the second jab, jab at a shorter interval between the two. Now, this brings us to uh, the amount of antibodies you get after one jab of any of these uh, vaccines. 
So what do we know about your protection after one jab? Yeah, the UK are, are playing a blinder, Pat. I mean, they're assessing huge numbers of people all the time now, either with AstraZeneca or Pfizer or Moderna, because all three are being used in the UK. AstraZeneca is, is the dominant one over there, of course. But it's good. I mean, after a single jab, you get 90% of people will have a good antibody response, which is great, you know, 90%. And then if you give the second jab, it goes to 100%. So again, the first jab is giving a good antibody response, and the second one then kind of reinforces is that that was eight and a half thousand people but it was important Pat because they showed something really sig- significant you should go for your second jab if you're older because it, you know that really works well and the older people they have a slower time to make antibodies because their immune systems are a little bit older as well um, and, and, th- and everybody catches up with each other once you have the second jab if you know what I mean so the second jab allows everybody to get to the same huge antibody level and then very importantly if you have cancer diabetes or heart disease again you'll have a slightly weaker response to the first jab but then the second jab, you're like everybody else. The antibody levels kick up really high, you see. So, so again, it reinforces the message, Pat, go back for your second jab. You'd be foolish not to, you know, because that second jab will reinforce the first jab and really give you huge antibody levels. And that's, that, that's what that study showed. Mm. Um, interesting. The average age of the participants was 65. And uh, if you had um, uh, already any antibodies because you'd had COVID, you were excluded from the study. So these were people, um, if you like, with virgin immune systems uh, vis-a-vis uh, the coronavirus um, that they were testing. Yeah, so exactly. This yeah. is a, a pretty good study. It's a great study. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I don't know if you saw that headline, I think it was in The Independent this morning, suggesting that in the younger age cohort, one in 10 would be vaccine hesitant. Yes, it's understandable, isn't it, in a way? I mean, watch the campaign, we'll move on now, because Ireland has done remarkably well. Did you see, the, again, a serve 88% of people have said they will go for vaccination, which is a great number, really, that's fantastic, isn't it? But then as you go down to the ages, they get less and less likely to go. They're probably thinking, oh, it doesn't really affect me, I'm not going to get really sick anyway. They they will hear the hesitancies and, and the various, you know, messing around that's been going on a bit, I suppose I might put them off, you know? So really, I think the, the message would be just to encourage people to go at, at, at any age really you know it may change once we get to the under 30s remember there's a, there was talk about of giving away the vaccine to the developing world for those younger people that that might mm-hmm. be a reasonable thing to do in the next two or three months you see because it's true this disease doesn't really affect young people you see so so you can see why there will be a bit of hesitancy there all right now uh, you want to talk to us also about how antibodies are predictive of protection now, that's a bit of a mouthful what yeah. do you mean well this is important Pat, because if you could if you could give someone a vaccine and then measure their antibody levels and then know that that predicts their protection do you know what i mean in other words, you're not looking to see if they're infected or not you're just looking at their immune system in action basically and they're called correlates of protection and it's been a huge area in vaccinology for years anyway because if you could if i give you a vaccine and i can measure the antibodies in your blood i can then tell you almost certainly you'll be protected to the following level you know and now mm-hmm. a great study seven vaccines were looked at they measured antibodies in the people's blood and they measured their risk of infection and they got a very good correlation between the two and that is almost like a graph you can draw about the level of antibodies and how much that would actually protect you and it's important Pat because when we run more trials with say variants and so on you can't do a placebo anymore because that's unethical you know 
So mm-hmm. you'd rather have, can I measure that person's immune system and then be confident that that level of immunity will then predict protection against the virus. That's seen as an important study. And, and, and yet it, this correlation thing is seen as a key thing. And then the second thing they measure are the T cells and they're the other part of the immune system. And again, that's showing a good correlation. It's, it's predicted that that will also predict, you know, the effectiveness of each vaccine. So it's just a handy thing to do when you're looking at how good vaccines are. And in, and in the community as well, if you can measure someone's antibodies and say, look, it reached this level and they are definitely protected kind of thing. So it's seen as an important important study. Uh, one of our News Talk listeners has been on. Uh, ask uh, Professor Luke, does having had COVID last October give any protection against new variants, particularly, I suppose, the Indian one? It should do. Yeah, I mean, what, what's happening is, but we don't know this for definite, by the way. We've got, we still have to tread somewhat carefully here on this overall. Until, uh, the data at the moment says... If you've been infected or if you've been vaccinated, that would protect you from severe disease from any of the variants is the important thing. You may still get infected, but it shouldn't progress into severity. And that would apply to the natural infection as well. And remember, Pat, the natural infection is a great thing to have because you get a massive immune response to many parts of the virus. Your all systems all go, whereas the vaccine is just a spike, which is still a very good thing to use, by the way, because obviously you want to block the spike protein. But still, natural infection is, a, is predicted to be a good protector against reinfection, basically. And and then also, Pat, what's important is even with the flu and with other coronaviruses, if you've been infected, there is a risk of reinfection, but it'll be a milder disease because obviously there's some immunity there anyway, you know, and, and it won't progress as well. So we're learning a lot about, about uh, COVID-19 in this context as well. Now, I saw some very interesting stuff about mixing and matching at the vaccines. And uh, you've been talking about this, how it seems like a pretty good idea. But um, Zhu Jing, an immunologist at McMaster University in Hamilton, Canada, a very fine university is McMaster. And he has concluded it appears the Pfizer vaccine boosted antibody responses remarkably in one dose AstraZeneca vaccine ease. So in other words, if you've had one dose of AstraZeneca you really would be better off to get your second dose of Pfizer and then bingo, you're super protected. This is great stuff, Pat, to be honest. I mean, last this is coming every day. But last week, we discussed another analysis which showed that if you have AstraZeneca followed by Pfizer, you will have stronger side effects. So you do feel it more. But but still, it was good. It was safe. You know, that was the first study showing safety. And now the data is coming out. You get a great antibody response if you, if you have Pfizer after AstraZeneca. And it was a really huge response. It was 600 people were studied who had AstraZeneca first followed by Pfizer. And they got a really strong immune response, which was tremendous. And this is called this heterologous prime boost in, in the jargon of, of the area, you know. But it was really strong, much stronger than, say, two AstraZeneca's, you see. So that just shows yeah. you if you mix them, you get an even better immune. And of course, it makes sense because the, the first the first shot of AstraZeneca, uh, you might get a slight desensitization to the second shot. The immune system kind of recognizes it and begins to limit it slightly strange as it may seem. Whereas if you give a second different one, the, the immune system hasn't seen that, you see. So now it kicks off really strongly. So it argues strongly, Pat, for mixing and matching, actually, is what, what these studies at the moment are saying and, and this would help us uh, globally as well you're, you're not going to wait then for the second AstraZeneca dose you might have Pfizer in the fridge you see give that a, yeah. instead of AstraZeneca so just, it, just, it just improves the rollout tremendously now they haven't said they're going to do that yet there's 600 people they want probably more data I would guess to make sure this is all fine you know but those early indications are very, uh, very optimistic that we can mix and match them
Okay, and that might be good news because I think I heard yesterday from the HSC boss, Paul Reid, that uh, some supplies of AstraZeneca might be slower uh, in the next few weeks, but there's a big dose of Pfizer due. Um, So therefore, you don't have to hang around waiting for AstraZeneca. You can be given your second jab of Pfizer and uh, get this brilliant immunity, which would be uh, terrific. Um, Dogs. Now, dogs may have a role to play, it appears, Luke. You've scooped me on this one, Pat, because I've got a great story about dogs for Thursday, if you can believe it. There's a fantastic study in France about dogs, uh, sniffer dogs, but you spotted this other one. Yeah, a UK-based study where dogs can pick up the virus with 94% accuracy. Isn't that remarkable? So dogs are as good as any antigen test, let's put it that way, you know. And again, it was a systematic analysis. They 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 exposed the dogs to sniff, you know, some fluids containing the virus, and then lo and behold, the dog could sniff out the virus in people and it could sniff it out in asymptomatic people as well by the way which is really good you know and what was very nice about that study was um, they, they trained them against the old virus you know the, the previous form and it could still sniff out the UK one isn't that great and again that just shows you how similar the two variants are anyway if a, if a dog can sniff the yeah. new one and the old one that means they've got a lot in common you know so that was a really good study and, and, and it was six dogs were used but Pat there's a great study which I'll talk about on Thursday uh, which huge, huge number of <laughs> Dogs tested. Great science. I mean, I, I think dogs dogs have to be part of our future with this one, basically, because yeah. all, all the evidence grows and grows, you know. Yeah, and we know that dogs are used for um, predicting epileptic uh, seizures in people, and also uh, they're looking at dogs and cancer. So uh, the, it's just the incredible... And sniffing power that they have, yeah. um, you know, tiny parts per million uh, they can detect of any particular substance. Um, th- there's a, a, another aspect of all of this. We're hearing lots about opening, predicting we could have restaurants opening sooner than we thought. And I presume that's based on uh, the vaccine rollout and how effective that is. But um, what about ventilation? I'm not seeing any rules and regulations for restaurants with ventilation. Um, also, they've abandoned the, uh, you know, 90-minute rule. Now, some restaurateurs will be annoyed about that because if they can turn over their tables fairly quickly, especially if they're well-spaced so they don't have the usual number of tables, uh, that'll be good news for them. Mm. But for people who don't serve food, who just serve drink, they don't care who's drinking. Exactly. <laughs> you can stay yeah. as long as you like, right. as long as you're, you're, you're drinking pints. But you'd like to see good regulation coming in or good guidance coming in on ventilation. You would, you would. It's essential, Pat, because as we've been discussing, ventilation is a fantastic mitigator. It's the most, it's the most powerful one now, we think, is to have good ventilation. It exceeds everything else, basically, you know. So you're absolutely right. We'd love to see good good guidelines on that. Now, in the summer, they will have the doors and the windows open, I imagine, in the restaurants will be fine. Mm-hmm. You know? it's, more, it's more the autumn and the winter. So we've time now, in the next few months, to get those guidelines in place. And it's not difficult, I don't think. I mean, you can buy ventilators that are quite cheap. You can have a certain level of airflow and so on. You know, although the engineers would be needed to provide advice, I imagine, on the size of the room and so on. But but it'd be wonderful if that, if that was sort of more formalised. That would make us all safer when the winter comes. Now, could you ask, Luke, this is from Siobhan, um, if you go for the COVID test, does it test for the variants? I phoned the HSE helpline and they didn't know. Also, if you're taking antibiotics, does that affect the results? Uh, that's from Siobhan. 
Yeah, no evidence of antibiotics. That's an easy one, as far as I'm aware anyway. There's no reason to worry about that because that's a very different thing. You know, there's no evidence that... Uh, yeah, because so you're limit. dealing with the virus, not with that's a, right. a, yeah, a bacterium. Yeah. I'm not sure about the variants. They're screening for those variants all the time and it's very important to track down these variants. And the UK have done a spectacular job. They're screening thousands and thousands of samples all the looking for variants, basically, you know. I don't think that's... Well, it is happening in Ireland, by the way, because they found, I think, the 72 cases of the Indian one, for instance, you know. I'm not sure how routine it is. You you. you you would have a specific test for a variant, obviously, enough to really pick it up, you know, and then a more global test for any variant, if you like, you see. I'm not sure what percent of samples have been checked for variants and the previous one. I don't know the answer to that one. That's a good question. Yeah. And we haven't had any information, uh, as far as I know, about where the Indian variants came from. I mean, obviously, there are thousands of them in the UK. So if people came from those areas uh, to visit Ireland, they could have brought it in that way or whether or not our Indian variants came from people returning from India, yeah, yeah. because you remember how slow we were about adding India to the quarantine list, maybe even as people were dying on the streets of yeah. uh, uh, Delhi and Mumbai, uh, we kept our doors open, no quarantine for people coming back. Yeah. And it will dominate, but the UK, they're saying it has become the dominant variant now because it spreads more readily you see and then it'll begin to take over, you know. And it is a concern, remember, because you will pick up a higher dose potentially and people could end up getting quite ill with it because you're taking more on board because it's a bit more transmissible, you know. So it's not, it's not to be taken lightly, this Indian one, and it's important we keep tracking it, really important. All right, Luke. Well, look, I look forward to uh, hearing about the dogs uh, from France on Thursday, among our other uh, topics. But for the moment, Luke O'Neill, Professor of Biochemistry at Trinity College in Dublin, thank you very much for joining us. 